Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, the tennis podcast from an insider's perspective. I'm Craig Shapiro, and on the show, I talk with the most interesting voices in the sport. We've got a great show for you today. Listen, the world of tennis is not just what happens on the court. It's business, it's culture, and it's fashion. And today we have a sage voice who can attest to that. He never played Pete or Mac or Andre, but he was instrumental in outfitting all of them. For the past three decades, Nike has dominated tennis, and Ian Hamilton was there from the beginning, taking the swoosh and putting it on the best players in the sport. Now Serena wears it, Rafa wears it, and Roger won all 20 of his slams in it. Ian's going to tell us how John McEnroe won the LA Open in Bo Jackson's shoes, what it was like to shoot a commercial with Andre and Pete in Trafalgar Square at the height of their rivalry, and what his thoughts are on tennis apparel today. Classes in session coming to you from Lake Oswego, Oregon. We're talking fashion, we're talking tennis, we're talking kidney transplants with the one and only Ian Hamilton. <laughs> okay, uh, baby. Ian, my man. First of all, in the 90s, there was not a tennis tournament in the world that you could walk 30 steps and not hear your name. Hmm. Period. That's a fact. At that time, in 1996, 1997, Nike had completely taken over tennis. I wouldn't say we we took over tennis. I think what we tried to do was have a presence in the game with players and 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 try and make it fun. You know, I always felt like if we made tennis fun, we'd get our fair share of the pie. And that's all we were trying to do. Well, listen, was back. do great things with great people and you know, the rest was going to take care of itself. You and I, we met doing the Nike Junior Tour Masters. It was a one-camera show at the Club Med Sandpiper, and it was all the best 8- to 12-year-olds in the world. We squeezed the, we squeezed the best we could out of a, the budget we had to, to make a great show with a bunch of great kids. I mean, it was pretty fun. And I think when you have a challenge like that, you know, when you got one camera and then you've got the talent, it's kind of fun doing that, that stuff. That was great. That was like the real world of tennis. That, yeah. that could have been a series, I thought. Yeah. You no, we wanted, way? remember, we wanted to go back and do it again the next year. And, and the whole concept on that thing was who's next? Who's next? So the it was Nike like Nike Junior Tour Masters. Right. You wanted to follow those kids and see who really was next. Yeah. And by the way, that kid, Quincy, the, if you remember, there was an Italian. He, I can't, I think he won it. That kid got the wild card into the next gen last year. Well, you know, I, I, and people I'm, were like, who is this guy? He was like, he's still like 400 in the world. I'm pretty sure that Nike found Rafa through the Nike Junior Tour. He, he won the thing when he was young, and I think that's where they found him. So, in an effort to keep things moving and cover a wide range of topics, we're using a five set format. First set is what we call the off the court report. And I know that your biggest venture now is Nike camps. Nike sports camps in the U.S. And then I also run the uh, Sports Camps Canada, which is we started three years ago. So I'm the chairman of the board of U.S. sports camps. We've been in business for 45 years now, I believe. We have 750 locations in the U.S. We're going to end up doing 90,000 kids by the end of the year. It's a network of coaches that run great camps and that's that's what this business is all about what's that and that's like a, like a peter burwash kind of situation where like the coaches all have a certain criteria they have to meet yeah, well i wouldn't say you know i think peter was teaching a system 
And, you know, our coaches teach whatever their system is. We don't, we don't tell anybody how to run their camp in terms of the curriculum. If it's Craig Shapiro tennis camp, it's the Craig Shapiro tennis camp. We don't take it over and say, okay, Craig, now you got to do this. So you're like the business consultant. We, we are the back end. We put Craig in business so that all Craig has to do is show up and do what Craig does best, and that's teach tennis right. or teach soccer or teach lacrosse or right. whatever whatever it is. But the whole idea is great coaches that know how to run great camps teach kids to get better. The kids have fun. They come back and they do it again. I started out in this business at a tennis camp in Lake Tahoe, my four summers in college, the first four summers uh, working for U.S. Sports that U.S. Sports was in business. And we started out in Squaw Valley. We literally painted eight tennis courts on the parking lot at the, at the base of the mountain, put up two by fours, chicken wire fence, and ran 100 kids every week for 10 weeks. And the kids had a blast. Squaw Valley. The kids stayed at the Squaw Valley Lodge. We climbed the mountain for afternoon activities. We hiked up the Shirley Lake. We went river rafting. I mean, it, it was just, it was amazing. But, you know, on the tennis court, you know, we were teaching tennis. We had, you know, we had college coaches. Everybody, everybody there was playing college tennis. And, you know, this was what they did in the summer. So, you know, that's what all you guys did. That's what everybody did. So when we weren't on the court with the kids, we were hitting balls and working on our own games. But the kids all were, were, were just a part of this whole thing. It was amazing. And I'm telling you, we ran 100 kids every week. It was really something. Sometimes those are like the best of times. Huh? No, it was, you know, it was, I think it was the best of times for us, but I, I can't imagine how good it was for those kids. Moving into our second set, we call this our on-the-court report. You know, I consider you the founder of Nike Tennis. I don't think anybody would really argue that. Well, I, I would argue that. It started with Phil Knight, who was a big advocate for tennis at the time, who helped clear the way for us to be able to do what we did. We had a team of people in the U.S., and then we built a team of people in Europe, and then we built a team of people in Asia, and that's... I mean that's 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 how you do it. It's no it's no one person. No one it's, person. It's it's a it's a group of people that have a common goal that are all on the team and that everybody shares, you know, shares that same desire. And our desire was to be the tennis player's brand. We're gonna talk about you and your career um, in our next set, but I want to talk about your impressions of fashion and tennis and the and tennis clothes today this year. This moment in time, how are you feeling about what you're seeing? You know, and there's sort of this unwritten rule about tennis product that you know that 50% of tennis product is never used on the tennis court. That, you know, tennis product is typically lifestyle product. A tennis shoe is a tennis shoe, but, but a lot of people wear a tennis shoe to school or a lot of people wear a tennis shoe out at night because... It's, it's a good looking shoe and it's fashionable. So the whole idea of, you know, making tennis fashionable was you had to make, make stuff that worked off the court as well as on the court. But now, and, what are you seeing now? So now I think, you know, w when I look at it now and I look at what's going on, I mean, I, I think that it looks almost like t-shirts and- We see a lot of shirts with no collar. You know, you see a lot of training type stuff as opposed to tennis stuff. And I kind of wish, 
You like a classic look. Well, I, I wouldn't say I like a classic look. I just think that tennis should have a look. And yes. right now, training is the look for tennis, or fitness is the look for tennis, as opposed to tennis having a look that is training or fitness. Well, hold on a second. And Let's I, go through it. So first of all, I think Nishikori and Fed... And, and I no give, question that those guys are set up great. But some of the other stuff that you see out there just doesn't look that great. And um, Well, it looks cheap. And you can't you you can't help it because you don't know what's going on with these other with with the other manufacturers. You know, I mean, you don't know what sort of effort they're able to put into it. In you know, in, let me in, ask you. Let me ask you this: What do you think of? Part of me thinks that it was you guys who did this, and I, I consider it a, a total screw up. But you know, every slam, you guys the 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 companies break out a new line of gear, right? And I always liked that McEnroe wore the same shirt for years or Lendl wore the same shirt for years or even Andre had gear that he would wear for a year. And then somehow it all changed and now it's new gear every slam. No, well, that, well, that, you know, what, what you just described never happened. Those guys changed their costume at least every six months and sometimes sooner based on the seasons. But I used to always say, you knew you were clicking on all cylinders when you know Andre's holding the trophy, the commercials running on television, the ad is in the program, the product is in the booth at Flushing, and Monday morning the product is in the retailer's store when the people call and say, "I want the stuff Andre was wearing when he won the U.S. Open." Hundred percent. That's when you were clicking on all cylinders, and we had that. that you know, does that happen now? Sure, it happens now. Is there any brand that you've seen that looks better than others? Um, I always really thought Lacoste stayed like when, when, like even Clement was wearing just the classic Lacoste solid shirt with yeah, a solid yeah, short. I mean, yeah. But now Joker's wearing Lacoste, and I don't think his stuff looks great at well, all. Well, no, it, it, listen, you're never going to always like everything that you see because it changes so often. You're going to see something you like, and then six months later, it's going to be different. And that's the nature of the business. So if you see something you like, you better jump on it. Because six months later, it's going to be gone. But that's it. Like, I bought three pairs of Adidas uh, Roland Garros shorts from not even this past Roland Garros, Roland Garros before that. I don't need shorts probably for the rest of my life. Yeah, so? I'm saying, like, I can't stay with it every month. Yeah, I'm but not you're, not, you're, you're not the, maybe, maybe you're not the target consumer. The target consumer is typically an 18 to 32 year old player or a 14 to 32 year old and you know and they're buying gear they're they're emotionally connected to what they see on TV do you have any interesting um opinions of like the collabs that we see now like uh for a while now Adidas were doing doing like a Yamamoto Y3 for Adidas or Stella McCartney for Adidas um you know, Nike and tennis hasn't done that. Um, no, because I think that, you know, internally, they're, the design team and the people that have worked on the stuff have been strong enough, and they've come out with stuff that, that has made enough of a statement that they haven't had to sort of lend someone else's name to it. What do you think of that trend, though? I mean, it's kind of... Well, I, think, I think you do what you have to do. I mean, you know, if, if, they, if they felt like 
It was something that they was it was going to help them move the needle. I think, I think they can do it. But I think you know, to your point about Lacoste, I mean, Lacoste has been traditionally in tennis ever since you go. It goes all the way back to the Four Musketeers, you know, and those guys. And when you think about the history, you know, you, you think about the history of French tennis and the fact that okay, that brand's been around. And then Sergio Tacchini, you know, what Sergio did way back when, and then you know the evolution of of Tacchini and what's gone on there. So. You know, there's there there's there's different culture going on with those brands than there is with Nike or Adidas or anybody else. When, what do your sources tell you about the the viability, the health of of these tennis brands? I think you know the tennis business is a tennis business is a tough business. There's I don't think anybody will tell you that it's not. I mean, it's it's not a huge pie, and everybody's fighting for. The piece of the pie. So if you're going to grow your business, maybe you got to grow outside that pie. Do you have people on the inside that tell you like, oh, well, Takini's hemorrhaging money. I had always heard Takini did a bad deal with Martina Hingis and never recovered. Um, do you, are you, well, uh, I mean, do you have your, do you have your finger on that pulse anymore? Well, I, I mean, I don't know what the, the corporate setup is of Takini these days, but I mean, last I heard they were, you know, owned by a foreign investor, right? They're not an Italian investor anymore? I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, that's something we you might want to check out. Well, I know I mean, Fila is South Korean. Right, right. So, the, you know, they've lost the, the, the Italian heritage. I mean, I remember when, when I was playing on the satellites in Europe, I remember finding my way to Caltanaka, Italy, on a train going to the Tacchini warehouse to hopefully get some free stuff and showing up on a Sunday only to find out that they were Cuso and sticking my nose on the glass in the front window of the place and seeing the giant black and white photo up on the wall of Sherwood Stewart, Vetus Gerolitis, and a bunch of other tikini wearing tennis Luis players clerk, in, in the lobby of the place and not being able to get in. <laughs> they were you know? closed. <laughs> no, that was because we picked the wrong day and the wrong month. Um, do you have any interesting opinions about the gear that they put Rafa on over the years? Um, short sleeves to regular size, those, those think, the culottes you know, and the, no. I mean, look at I mean, remember the pirate pants? I mean, everybody thought yeah, I'm saying those, the culottes. Everybody thought those were crazy, but you know, it, it was it was great. You know, I mean, it, look, it got people talking about tennis, and at the end of the day, you know, tennis is always going to fight for its piece of the mind share of the consumer. And anything that you can do to get people talking about tennis is a good thing. What do you think of the women's gear? In a lot of ways, I think the women's gear looks better than the men's gear. A lot of times the women are put together better than better than the guys are. And I'm just I'm just speaking in general, you know, just in terms of some of the stuff that you see. Do you have any interesting opinions about Serena and what she's been coming out with? I mean, she actually, we talked about those collabs that last U.S. Open, where she was wearing that tutu, that was Virgil Abloh, right? That's like the big designer collab that Nike has been. And I know I don't know anything about that, honestly. I, I honest, I, I just, I don't know anything about that. Yeah, you don't know about that. No. Do no. you have any opinions about her and her gear? No, I think you know it's. Um... You know, God. I mean, there's nobody bigger than Serena. There's nobody bigger than Serena. Yeah, I mean, there, there, uh, there obviously is a plan there for for what they're doing, and I just don't know. I don't know anything about it. 
Fair enough. I haven't been involved. I haven't been involved in any conversations or anything about Serena. How does Simona Holop final Australia with no clothing deal? Timing. That's it. Timing. Just a business thing. Yeah, I think things didn't happen with her previous sponsor, and Nike picked her up, and it was just timing. And and I don't know the details. No, no, no. I'm just curious as someone that was deep into this game for a long time. What you think? No. Um, what do you think about uh, Club Fed moving to Uniqlo? I mean, that's got to be... It's, it's a blockbuster deal. and it, it, it's... For those that don't know, the talk is is that Roger did a 10-year, $30 million a year guaranteed deal, which obviously takes him to 47 years old. Um, it's a different kind of a play. It's a play that I don't think any of us have ever seen before in, 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 in tennis, that's for sure. Yeah. It's a lot of money, and I think Roger realizes he can do a lot with a lot of money. You know, we may find him doing more charity stuff. And, what, and what's the thought on the Uniqlo side? You know, brands are going to come and go and try and, you know, use tennis as the vehicle. You know, and, and tennis is a great vehicle for brands that, that want global recognition because tennis is a global sport. Tennis is a global sport. Golf is a global sport. And, you know, there's only a couple sports where you know the footwear and apparel that, that the athletes wear is their team uniform. We're moving on to our uh, third set. Um, this is typically where we talk about the, the player or the person's career. You were a college player. You played at Cal? Arizona State. Sorry. Um, why don't you tell the story instead of me trying to no. pretend to know it? No, I, we've I, talked about before, but no, I was probably the worst player on the team at, at Arizona State, and, I, and this is what this is going to be the mid seventies. This was I graduated in December of nineteen eighty. In uh, December of eighty, moved to Palm Springs. I was the director of tennis at Rancho Las Palmas Resort Country Club. It was a, at the time. You know, it was the only, one of the only places in Southern California with 25 tennis courts, 27 holes of golf, five-star Marriott Hotel. How'd you get that job? We were humming um, from the summer camp business at Lake Tahoe. You the, just kept moving and Bill, Bill Smith, who was the director of the camp at the time, was my boss in Palm Springs. So he hired me to, to come down there. So I was in, uh, at Rancho Las Palmas until May. And then in May, I w would go to Europe and play the satellites. I played the Dutch satellite and played a bunch of tournaments in Italy and Germany and all your over name the place. Com your name comes up on the ATP yeah, well, uh, app. Uh, and then it just, barely. No, it, absolutely barely. It says it comes up and it just says about your <laughs> professional life. It doesn't yeah. say it's about your pro tennis yeah, career. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it um, yeah, because probably the results aren't. It says hit. after a short career in pro tennis. Yeah, you so became... very limited results at, at small tournaments in Italy. But I can tell you that the experience that I got in those summers, the tournament directors that were running those tournaments were guys that ultimately were agents in the tennis business that I dealt with when I got to Nike. And that background of playing those tournaments and getting to know where the bones were buried in the tennis game absolutely were invaluable when guys I- Guys you met over there ended up working at IMG. Sergio Palmieri. Sergio Palmieri. Sergio Palmieri, he runs the Italian Open, by the way. Chino Marchese. Chino Marchese, heavy IMG, yeah. uh, Europe guy. Yeah. No, so it just was a great experience. And that's what I did uh, prior to going to Nike. How'd you get the job at Nike then? So the third year after I had gone to Europe, the third sort of summer in a row, um, the guy that I was working with that was sending me Nike product was a guy by the name of Glenn Gerstmar. 
And so Glenn called me up and said, you know, hey, this tennis thing's getting big here. You want a job? So anyhow, I called my father and I said, dad, this company in Oregon offered me a job. And he said, do they have benefits? <laughs> I, said, I said, I think so. He said, what's the name of the company? I said, it's called Nike. He said, well, if they got benefits, you should think about taking that job. 100% so that was benefits. 1983, and you know, it was probably the best decision I ever made in my life. Would it be fair to say that Mac was wearing the canvas shoe with the the? the yeah, Mac had already been signed. He Mac was wearing the sock and the shoe. So you came when it was still allowed, where the player would wear different apparel right, and right. the sock and the shoe. Right, right. And and then what about the checkerboard shirt? That was one of the first things that happened in terms of us getting in the apparel business was the McEnroe stuff. And, you know, the checkerboard was sort of the New York taxi cab inspired thing. That's where the checkerboard came from. Right. And you told me a great story once about the um, the famous McEnroe shoe. Yeah. Tinker Hatfield and I were in um, L.A. Uh, to meet with John and try and figure out how to. He was having problems with his shoes. And, you know, Tinker had a bag of shoes and we were in the locker room at, at UCLA. Tinker Hatfield, he's the he's a famous uh, designer, yeah. shoe designer. Yeah. Well, the Tinker story, yeah, it it's, tells itself. I mean, it's it's an amazing story. But anyhow, so we're in the locker room at UCLA at the tennis stadium. Tinker's got a bag of shoes, and John sees the shoe, and he goes, "What's that?" And he's and you know, Tinker says, uh, "says This is a cross training shoe that was Bo Jackson was gonna. It was the Bo Jackson. Bo was Bo was gonna wear this shoe and." So John goes, let me try that shoe. And he puts them on and goes out and wins the tournament. And the next thing you know, everybody wants that shoe. And As a tennis shoe. As a tennis shoe. And it wasn't designed to be a tennis shoe, but yet, you know, you always thought about making a shoe that was going to be like a game day shoe that you didn't care about how durable it was, but it was just super light and super like, you know, performance you know fast and and comfortable and you know okay for the day but you know you're not going to worry about if you get two weeks out of it that's that's what that was because that shoe didn't have a lot of life to it if no, you because it your wasn't, toe. yeah no because as we all know a tennis shoe's got to be durable and and tennis players want a durable shoe that shoe was everything but but on the other hand you know, when you think of it, you know, Tinker was always playing around with this concept of having a game day shoe, you know, something that's good for one match and it doesn't matter because it's that good. People and I'm not I'm not saying that's what that was all about, but it sort of did kind of fit into that. People love the Velcro buckle on the yeah, bottom. That yeah. was the that was the revolutionary. But that was thing. all that was a whole that was a cross training deal. And uh, but it but it lent itself to tennis. When did you get the open checkbook? When did you start signing players? When were you? Well, I would I wouldn't say we I ever had an open checkbook. Sure felt I mean, like it. We had to make smart moves. It wasn't like we had an open checkbook. You know, Phil used to always say, you know, there's one thing that you got to remember is we want their heart and soul, not just their feet. So just so we're clear, Phil is Phil Knight, the founder of Nike. And Ian has had a fluid relationship with for, you know, 35 years now. So, so was, at that time, in the early 80s, I, I imagine Phil must have been pretty hands-on. He was hands-on in tennis because, you know, we were fortunate enough to, to you know, be in a category that he, he cared a lot about. And why was that? Well, because he, he believed in tennis in terms of what it meant for the brand. 
and what it did for the brand. What was the first significant signing you made? I remember before we were on the campus, walking over to Phil's office with a VCR tucked under my arm and two copies of Nick Boletari's books. And I went over there to convince Phil that we needed to sign Nick Boletari because everybody who's anybody is at the academy and we'll get to see him before anybody else does. So, um, oh, that was a genius move. So, anyhow, so, um, you know, I, we signed Nick and, you know, I, I ended up spending a lot of time with Nick, which is probably another episode of this show. So, you probably did a deal with Boletari Tennis Academy around 85 ish, 86 ish. Yeah. Yeah. And that became a feeder. And we, we built an apparel sort of collection that was designed as like a practice gear kind of thing. And, you know, the joke about it was because Boletari ends at a vowel, they think it's Gucci or Armani, and, you know, people think it's a, an Italian designer, not a guy that runs a tennis game. I remember one of my favorite T-shirts was a white Nike T-shirt with Boletari in big letters horizontally down the yeah. left side of the shirt. Yeah, that was the... That in was, fact, I have a picture of myself in that shirt. No, that was the that was the practice gear line. It was, it was good stuff. So was it um, Courier next? I mean, is that the... Yeah, I, I, Jim Jim might have come in around then. You know, there was David Wheaton. Well, I mean, Jim, listen, Jim went to number one. Yeah. That's Jim, your, you put him in baseball. Jim, so, well, so Jim was sort of the practice guy also. So that line was designed not just to be baseball, but it was also sort of like a practice kind of deal. And then we had Pete. Well, no, no, Jim that, was, did you, he, Jim was the guy that did the hard work. Yeah. He yeah. was the grinder. He was the hardcore grinder. And then Pete was this sort of, you know, dressed up guy. And then Andre, you know, you could take chances with what, what we did with Andre. And so that was how the three guys were positioned. And it was set that nobody wore Pete's gear, Andre's gear, Courier's gear, correct? Correct. You know, with these high profile players, you made some commercials. First of all, the Jim Courier Nike commercial. Remember the one where he's got the, he's running with a parachute on his back. Like oh, that was the one where he was training with um, Echeverry. Pat, Pat Echeverry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pat Echeverry. Yeah. Uh, we've talked about him as well, um, located at Saddlebrook Resort in Tampa for, man, as long as I can remember. But but Jim Jim did a commercial for Nike that showed him training. Yeah. And um, that, in my opinion, was a pivotal moment in tennis because the other players didn't realize how that you hard, could train like that. How hard Jim was working. And again, that was when Jim was on top of the world. And what he was doing with Pat Echeberry and Jose Higueras was pretty unique. And whose idea was it to film it and make a commercial? Well, it, it you know, look, it, it's the, you know, Widening Kennedy is the advertising agency. So there's... Widening you know, Kennedy, by the way, the famous ad agency that really, from the beginning, they've been Nike's ad agency. Well, they're, they're you know, they were the only client for a long time. And then they've, they've obviously got other clients now. So, you know, so then they come up with the concept and then we present it to the athlete and then you go do it. It. But and in, in, in that would be fair to say that that, that was a revolutionary for people to see well, Jim training. Yeah, it was revolutionary for Jim to sort of share that, and it was pretty good for him to 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 open up and let those guys do that. That that was a, the first sort of insight into Jim. No, and I remember um, back then Jim he stayed in a separate hotel from oh, yeah. everyone else. Yep. He he wanted people to know he was the man. Yep, he was, a, and he was he was no joke. Yep. He he worked as hard as anybody yeah, ever he did. did. Yeah, and you guys put him in a baseball stripe. Well, that was him. Yeah, that was his. 
you know, the Cincinnati Reds were the big deal with Jim, and so we tried to play off of that, which was, you know, it, you know, when you're working with an athlete, you know, you ask those questions, and, you know, when they tell you things are important to them, then you use those cues when you're trying to develop this stuff. Um, I mean, the most famous Nike tennis commercial there ever was is Pete and Andre racing through New York City um, setting up a tennis court, playing tennis all over the city. Yeah, so that was actually downtown San Francisco on a Sunday morning with like 3,000 extras tucked in an alley with Spike Jones. Who Spike Jones directed. Spike Jones, who had just finished doing like some skateboard deal or something for the X Games. He was like 26 or 27 years old. But I think it was, it was you know, before Spike started making movies, I think this was one of the first commercials he ever did. And the name of the commercial was Gorilla Tennis. It was it Gorilla Tennis. And it, and it was um, it was a short film and that you guys chopped well, it, into it was, pieces. No, it was, it was, Gorilla Tennis became a sort of theme for Nike Tennis. And so we followed that up with a short documentary that we did with Bob Potter. I don't know if you remember yeah, that. Remember, yeah. But we did a, a gorilla tennis thing where Bob followed these guys around and then that culminated at Wimbledon where on the Friday before Wimbledon started, we showed up in Trafalgar Square and Andre and Pete rolled up in a double-decker bus and we put a net across Trafalgar Square, chalked out a court, and they just started hitting tennis balls. And we had leaked it to the press like the night before and um, it was phenomenal. I mean, that was so, so, that kind of stuff was so much fun that, you know, and then you know, here you got Andre Agassi and Pete Sampras, you know, on, uh, at noon on Friday before Wimbledon starts hitting tennis balls in Trafalgar Square. Yeah, I mean, you can't make that up. No, it was, you know, and you know, we filmed it and, and used it in the documentary. And then that documentary followed us to the US Open and, you know, as luck would have it, they ended up playing in the final. And the, the documentary ran in the hour before the men's final on CBS on Sunday that year. And they, you know, we lucked out and they ended up playing each other in the final. So it looked like we were geniuses. Absolute geniuses. Yeah. I mean, that was yeah. as big as it got. But we just, we, we, were, we were lucky. We just got lucky. I mean. How was um, Pete to work with? Awesome. Pete was great. Is it true that you had to make his shirt a certain length so he could get into his pocket? Pete was pretty um, particular. Particular about you know how everything fit. His shirt had to land shirt, right it, above the pocket. Well, I, I I don't I don't remember that part about it, but I mean it had to fit a certain way, and the shorts had to fit a certain way. You know the shoes were you know we had to we had to build build the shoes separately for him and you know make them so that they fit right. He had a special. He had a special. Yeah, he was pretty. You know, he was pretty particular about everything. Andre, great guy, great human being. You know, I still, you know, have a good relationship with him today. You know, still get to see him occasionally. And how does Nike lose look, him? Look what he's. How done. did Nike lose him? How does he? Re how does he retire his last match in wearing Adidas? I mean, how does that happen? timing you know mistakes yeah yeah i mean he you know and obviously you know he's he's back there now and you know everything ended up okay but that was just sort of a that was a short-term blip 
unfortunate moment. Yeah, I mean that stuff happens, and you know it 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 got fixed, and it's all good. But you know, when I think of Andre, I mean, you think of the, you know, think of the charter school and the the effort that he put out in in that, and what he's done with those kids. You know that those kids are all graduating; those kids are all going to college. I mean, how many people can you put your finger on? You can say that they've had that kind of an impact on on people's lives, where they can. No, and, and by the way, I mean when he walks into a room, I mean he is no, he's incredible, yeah. magnetic. Yeah. Um, you feel incredible. He makes people feel incredible. Yeah, there's no. But doubt. I mean, yeah, but think about you know what he's done. Yeah, no, no, he's it's, always been on a different level. It's amazing. Yeah, I agree. It's truly amazing. I agree. And, you know, I've known the guy since he was 15 years old. No, I know. And watched the whole evolution of the whole thing and watched him become this person that he is. And, do you, and he's we, an amazing, amazing guy. Did you have, like, like, like sort of fucked up conversations where he'd be like, listen, man, I'm shaving my head. I'm going to, we no, got to change my clothes. no. no. No, I'm no, nothing like that. No. You, you would you would just come up, but I mean, because his clothes changed as he changed. Yeah, but he was a part of the he was a part of all that. I mean, not, none of that stuff happens by accident. I mean, he's got to be involved in the process. None of that stuff happens by accident. No, he's involved in the process. I mean, he doesn't nothing nothing. Nobody ends up wearing anything that they don't want to wear. I can promise you that. Whose idea was to put him in the jean shorts? I mean, that's that's a funny story too, because the jean shorts were actually designed for John. And I remember showing the shorts to John, and John didn't want to wear them. And so I said, okay, fine. I'll, I think these will work with Andre. So we gave them to Andre, and, you know, the rest is history. I mean, Andre in those jean shorts, I mean, that was an incredible moment. Yeah, but when they really caught on was when Tinker made the shorts with the Lycra tights underneath, and, you know, Andre was on fire, and he looked like it. And you talk about shaking up the tennis world. Tennis World was not ready for that. Who was the first woman that you guys made a play with? Mary Jo Fernandez was the first woman to wear women's apparel head to toe at a tournament. It was Mary Jo. Mary Jo. And I I, I, I want to say Mary Pierce if I'm remember. I'm, I'm probably wrong, but I think Mary Pierce won the first tournament. And what about the first head slam? Head to toe. I think it was Mary. She won the French Open. I think. Yeah. I, 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 you know. But you guys had way less of a presence on the women's side than the men's at first. Um, yeah, but 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 it wasn't long before we said we got to have a women's presence as well. So, but it was a matter, it, it, it became a matter of having the product. So, um, and I, I remember Mary Jo and she, it, uh, at Key Biscayne, when she wore the dress for the first time, it was like, that was a big deal. You know, I think another big thing that you guys did was you became the official apparel for Miami, which was the Lipton. Yep. And then you you never got the full contract, but you had a huge presence in New York. You sort well, of nobody became, nobody has the full contract in New York, but no, but but Fila was the closest thing to it, right? And then they spit the bit. Ralph Lauren took the umpires and the, they became official but nike became a huge that was the t-shirt everybody wanted to have but at the u.s open you're just a licensee so you know you get your booth and depending on the size of your booth you pay the rent for your booth but we went there every year and you know the design team you know always had a slew of graphics you know they made great t-shirts that were 
attitudinal and, you know, always had something to say and we're, we're really good. And I think people, people definitely looked forward to seeing, you know, what the Nike t-shirt was. You people know, wanted or, that shirt. No, what they were going to look like. And, and, you know, and we, we, you know, we had to do it all without saying U S open because we weren't paying to say U S open. So we said, it said Flushing Meadow or whatever. NYC. It said, or NYC, whatever it was. But, you know, <clears throat> when you put the Nike design team, who's unbelievably talented, you put those guys to work on coming up with graphics for things like that, you come up with great stuff. And, you know, but going back to the Key Biscayne thing, um, you know, that was a function of Butch and Cliff Buckholz. You know, two really good guys. Butch Buckholz from St. Louis was one of the best players in the world, probably in the 50s and 60s, and he was the original founder, I believe, with his brother of, of Miami. Yeah. So I, I remember sitting in, 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 in on the campus having a meeting with Butch and Cliff and just saying, guys, let's just do a deal. Let's let's just let's just do a deal and and do great business together. And that's what we did. And they were the, they were really, really great guys to work with. And you know, that's why we did such a good job there. I remember. I, I truly believe that those when you, when you see a brand looking so slick at these tournaments, but it's a function of those guys giving us the ability to do it. You know, a lot of times tournaments are protecting other. They've got other interests that they're protecting, and they're not letting you do yeah. what you need to do to make that happen. They let us. They they, they you know we were in it together, and that's why it worked. Same thing in Indianapolis back in the day when we were we sponsored Indy. The, the tournament in Indianapolis. It was basically those guys. We we partnered up with the guys. You know when RCA sponsored that tournament, and um, everybody just put their best foot forward. Right when Sampras was in the middle of his run, you handed the reins off to Bruce Schilling, as I recall. Mm -hmm. He took your job, mm -hmm. and you went to All Star Cafe. I went, yeah, Planet Hollywood, which had started a sports theme division. I mean, first of all, how do you leave that job concept. though? Well, it was, you know, at the time the theme restaurant business was booming and the way it was presented to me was it was about using athletes to build a brand again. So the, the athletes to build the All-Star Cafe brand were Tiger Woods, Shaquille O'Neal, Ken Griffey Jr., Andre Agassi, Monica Sellis, Wayne Gretzky, and Joe Montana. How do you say no to that? No, it was it was it was great. By the way, All Star Cafe, probably nineteen ninety nine ninety seven, ninety eight, ninety nine. It was a um, high profile, gigantic theme sports bar restaurants. They were like the Hard Rock cafes of sports. It was great, but it was also just a period of time when you know a publicly traded restaurant could do things like that. And then when things started going south, then it just didn't work. So when the book's written, what happened to All-Star Cafe? You don't have to write the book to find out what happened. I mean, Planet Hollywood went into chapter 11 and uh, All-Star went by the wayside. From there, you became the commissioner of bowling. The PBA tour, yes, it was a great experience. I mean, it was it was a lot of fun to sort of basically take a league that had at one time been you know the most popular league going before Saturday before uh, baseball on TV was a big deal before basketball on TV was a big deal. The PBA tour was on every Saturday before Wide World of Sports, and everybody knew it. And Chris Shankle was the guy, and 
and it had sort of vanished. And so our challenge was to bring it back. So again, we put the team together and got it back on ESPN and had a regular schedule live on Sundays, you know, right up against the NFL. What was it like working with um, the bowlers as opposed to like the tennis players? Was there Well, big... it's just obviously it's different. You know, obviously we're talking about, um, you know, guys that you sort of had to say, look, as athletes, this is what we should be doing. You know, we shouldn't be doing certain things in the bowling center if you want people to look at you as a professional. You know. These guys are like drinking and smoking. Well, butts. yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, there's there were there, you know, some of the guys. What about smoked, Earl Anthony? I always remember so, Earl so, Anthony. So yeah, it, uh, the sad thing about Earl was that I I wasn't in the job very long before Earl passed away. Oh uh, no, kidding. And then, That's the only know, name I remember from his, his his funeral was right out here in in uh, in uh, Pumpkin Ridge. Oh, you're kidding. Yeah, he he played golf out here quite a bit, so. Um, yeah, I didn't really get to know the guy, but you know, people don't realize how how big bowling is in that in certain parts of this country, where in the winter, you know, when people have to go indoors and are looking for things to do, you know, there's over 10 million registered league bowlers in America. You know, it's, the you, pro I, tour is a part of that, and so we gave them a show, and we gave them something to engage in. Um, again, I love doing that stuff. It was, it was fun. Uh, moving on to our fourth set. This is our 10 ball scramble. We do not do a deep dive, we go quick. I'm gonna say, it's like word association. I'm gonna say something and you're just gonna say the first thing that comes into your mind. Ready? Mm-hmm. Nike. Tennis. Adidas. Basketball. Lecoq Sportif. Crocodile. No, Lecoq Sportif's a chicken, right? Oh, the chicken. Yeah. Jesus, what am I thinking? And Adidas. Lecoq Sportif, Arthur, Arthur Ashe. Exactly. Now, what about Adidas? I mean, Adidas is not known for basketball. Why do you say basketball? No, I don't know. You're asking me to come up with the first thing I can think of. That's the first thing I think of. Well, who wore Adidas in basketball that you would even think of that? I don't know. Um, like Earl Monroe or something. No, I, for, so, so just scratch that one. Yeah. All right. Just scratch. Um, Lacoste? You know, uh, history. Tacchini. Italian. Fila. What happened? Yeah, what happened? What happened? They had such great clothes, right? Yeah. Bjorn Borg. Yeah. Um, Alesse. Same thing. Under Armour. Maybe. But I think that they're, they're going to move out of tennis. I think that that oh, Andy, yeah. I think that Andy Murray's uh, contract's going to come up, and he that doesn't seem like they ever were all the yeah. way in. Yeah. What do you think of them as a brand? They're the third brand. Are they? Yeah, I mean, they're not going away. Here to stay? Yeah, I think they'd have to, you know, I mean, they've they've got a lot of commitments, you know, that they've got to fulfill. They spent huge money for for UCLA. They've got a a lot of commitments they've got to fulfill. Um, Uniqlo. Interesting. New Balance. (laughs) That's that's a good one. You know, um, New Balance um, has uh, a couple players, and they actually, I think their clothes looks really good. Yeah, they're, they're interesting. It's it's interesting as well. I I, I think they've um, niche. What niche? They've got a niche. Um, hydrogen. Who's hydrogen? You know, you've seen them. No, that's the stuff that Fonini wears with like the skull. Have you oh, seen is that, that called hydrogen? Yeah, it's called hydrogen. Italian called hydrogen? brand hydrogen. Yeah. Yeah. 
even out of the game, man. No, I no, know. I, 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 no, I've seen that stuff. I just didn't know what it was. I didn't know it was called. The brand was hydrogen. It's hydrogen. It's and Itali- where's it? Where's it made? Italian brand. Probably I don't know. Probably made in China. I don't Jeez. know. Jeez. Now, um, my last one in our deep dive, Phil Knight. Great friend. Portland, Oregon. Great town. This is our final set. We call this our King of the Court. And basically, it's if you were the king, how would you do it? Um, if you were the king in tennis right now and you could change anything in apparel, what would you change? How would you do it? God, I... I uh... I don't know. I mean, that's it's hard to say because you say, "What could I change in apparel?" You make it sound like there's something wrong. And well, I, I think it, that a lot it, of people think that a lot, of, a lot of the clothes look cheap. People look lousy in their clothes. Yeah. So, so you know, so what do you do? You legislate that manufacturers have to make a commitment to product. That's not going to work. Like for me, I would like I would like to see a, a harken back to when your player had that shirt, like the Lendl shirt. That was a time when you had a lot of brands in the game, okay? You had Adidas, you had Nike, you had Takini, you had Alessa, you had Fila, you had Lotto, you had... Um, Lacoste. Lacoste. You had Lacoste Sportif. Yeah, so you had all these brands using tennis as the vehicle to get exposure for their brands, okay? A lot of those brands have either gone away or they've pulled out or they've decided not to use tennis. So if I was king, I'd like to see those brands come back. And or, I'd like, or, or come back in a meaningful yeah, way. Yeah, come back in a meaningful way, making, you know, making product that they put on tennis players that, you know, that that has a casual application, you know, off the court as well as on the court. And that it does something for this this sort of the fashion side of what tennis can do. I mean, it used to be that like it was bad form to wear yellow. Never mind fluorescent yellow. Nike comes out with a whole line of fluorescent yellow clothes a couple of years ago. And yeah, because it drew so much attention to tennis. It got people talking about tennis. It got people looking at tennis. It got people looking at tennis players t- and engaging in the sport. I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll give you this one for free. I think that somebody should figure out a rule that the two players can't be wearing the same kit. <laughs> I mean, that's tragic. When you have the same guy, the same people around the court in the same kit playing each other, that's a, that's a disaster. Yeah. At least give me that. No, I, listen, I, I think that... Um, and it was Nike who really started like allowing that terribleness to happen, I got to say, right? Well, uh, the same exact outfit, man. Yeah, but that's that's just a function of, you know, two guys ended up playing each other. You know, I mean, so how you you can't control the draw. You know, no, but you, if you, the two guys, right? But say say two Nike players are playing each other, there should be a rule that they got to have a conversation. Say, listen, I'm going to wear the blue. That they have to wear contrasting something outfits. Man. Yeah, to wear the same outfit. Well, good luck with that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's a, probably a perfect place to end this. Um, but I have one more question for you. When I met you in 2007, you started having some health issues. Um, that's been a 10, 11 years now. Can you explain what happened to you? I, you know, I have a disease that uh, 
for lack of a better word, you know, they call it, EM, my oncologist calls it Ian Hamilton disease. This is an undefined disease. Well, they think there's a definition for it. It's well, this Waldenstrom cryoglobulinemia. My bone marrow was producing an abnormal level of protein, which ultimately caused damage to my kidneys. And I am actually, I'm November 26th, I'm having a kidney transplant. Incredible. Um, so that's the, that's, you know, I've had a bone marrow transplant. I've had, you know, you can read about it on, my daughter put a website together called ianhamiltonneedsakidney.com. And that website actually helped me find a donor. That did? Yeah. But So you were in um, middling health for 10 years. So I've been dealing with this for 10 years. Energy issues, more more than that. You just kind of uh, were keeping it in your pocket. Yeah, I just got to keep going. You know, I got three kids. You know, I can't pack it in yet. And... Um, and so you're going to have a... So the good, the good news is that I'm going to have a kidney transplant and it should be the end of all this and it should be, you know, first day of the rest of my life. And what's the moral of the story? Moral of the story is, you know, be good to people and you never know what's going to come back to you. I mean, my, my donor is someone who's just a, a friend of the family who got to know us and, you know, just she decided she wanted to help and, you know... God bless her. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. It's an amazing gift. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm so lucky to, you know, have it. And um, yeah. And just, you can't really take anything for granted, can you? No. Ian, thank you so much, yep. as always. Thanks. It's so good to see you. Yep. Um, my man, good luck with that surgery. You are released. On November 26, Ian had a successful kidney transplant, and we wish him exemplary health and a speedy recovery. Huge thanks to Ian Hamilton. Our producer is Scott Tuft, and our music is by Brian Senti. Jason Binnick did our mix. I want to thank everyone for listening, for spreading the word. And if you haven't already, please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review us on the Apple Podcast app. We can be found on iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And let us know what you think. You can reach us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and our email is info at underreviewtennis.com. We will be back in no time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I am Craig Shapiro, and you are released.